Guys, uh, we got something special for you today. We are going to look at the uh, absolute most mind-numbingly boring part of the Bible. Um, so I want to invite you to follow along with me um, the genealogies listed in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, all right? Track it with me. Don't go to sleep. And uh, then we're going to come back around to it, Okay. Let me sum up the interesting part and belabor the the boring part. The interesting part of chapter four is this. Adam has two kids, all right? Cain and Abel. Cain is the firstborn. Cain doesn't like Abel. What do you do when you don't like someone? You kill him, all right? So that's what Cain does. He kills his brother Abel, and he gets sent out, all right? Now, it picks up. Yep, here we go. Verse 17, with a line of Cain. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. To Irad was born the father of Mahujael. I should have had you read this along with me. Um, And Mahujael was the father of Methushael, because that's not confusing. And Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now, Lamech was a player. One of, his wives, one of his wives' names was Ada, and the other was Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, um, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Now Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, And named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So what we've had traced out so far from Adam is the line of Cain. If that wasn't riveting enough, let's keep going. This is the written account of Adam's family line, chapter 5. When God created man or human beings, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man or human being. Now when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born... Adam lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, 930 years on this guy, and he died. When Seth lived 105, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, he lived 807 years and also had other sons and daughters, totaling 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived to 90. He became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, he lived another 815 and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Kenan lived to be 70. He became the father of Mahalalel, 
After he became the father of M, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. 910 on this guy, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65, became the father of Jared. Beyond that, lived 830, other sons and daughters. 895 total, died. Jared lived 162. He became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years. Other sons and daughters, total of 962. You know the refrain? And then he died. When Enoch lived 65, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Youngin. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he did what, refrain? No. No. Read it. And then he was no more because God took him away. Yeah, I, I don't know either. All right. <laughs> now, Methuselah lived 187 years. He became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years. Other sons, other daughters, chart tops it among all of them at 969 years. And then he died. Let's just give it up for Methuselah right now, all right? Do you think his relatives are sitting there going, if only 31 more years? Now, when Lamech had lived 182, he had a son, and he named him Noah. And he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595, had other sons and daughters, lived a total of 777, and then he died. And after Noah was 500, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Was that not just the most spiritually enriching experience you've ever had? It is the most boring part of the Bible, and it peppers the Bible, these genealogies. And what I want to talk about is, what are they doing here? And why are they significant? Now, what I've found is that sometimes you have to step out of something and look at it from a different perspective in order to understand it the way it wants to be understood. Does that make sense? So, if not, you'll catch up. You're smart people. Um, let's go back. Genesis 1, we have a mandate to humanity. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule, right? So God creates them, male and female, he creates them in his image. And it says God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. It's this passage I shared with you a few weeks ago that is going to echo throughout not only Genesis, but the entire biblical trajectory. And knowing what's going on here really kind of helps unlock some of what's going on in the Bible. Now you see this mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, bring my image forward. Problem is, as we saw the last couple of weeks, Adam and Eve rebelled. And in that rebellion, they turned their back on God and the whole thing got messed up. So what I'd like to do today 
is show you how the genealogies are picking up a storyline of how God is seeking to redeem and restore his creation. And to do it, we're going to need to step out of the Bible and look at the story from a different perspective. Now, I want to show you a video clip here. It's about a minute and a half long in just a moment. And what I want you to do is every time you hear the word ring mentioned, I want you to substitute the word sin. Can you do that? If you hear the word ring, substitute sin. Roll it. It is in men that we must place our hope. Men. Men are weak. The race of men is failing. The blood of Numenor is all but spent. Its pride and dignity forgotten. It is because of men the ring survives. I was there, Gandalf. I was there 3,000 years ago. that day, but evil was allowed to endure. Isildur kept the ring. The line of kings is broken. There's no strength left in the world of men. A scattered, divided, leaderless. There is one who could unite them. One who could reclaim the throne of Gondor. through this platform to understand what is going on in Genesis and why these genealogies are so significant. First, does it strike you that in the middle of the storyline of creation and then fall, the very next thing Genesis moves into is genealogies. It feels like a hiccup. But there's three things that these genealogies are doing, and the first is this. The first is that what God is doing is history. It is the stuff of history. Most major belief systems in this world are philosophical in nature. They're about good ideas. But what makes the biblical record unique is that instead of just talking about good ideas of right and wrong and and good and evil, it actually says God is a God of history. He is a real God working among real people in real places at a real time. God is not just an idea. God is in reality. And this is what the genealogies are about. I've met so many people that have said, you know, I want to believe, I just wish I had some evidence. Have you been there? What the genealogies are doing is saying, this is the evidence. 
These are the people God worked with. Go talk to them. Now, we can't do that, right? But for the people who were reading the record, this is precisely what the genealogies did. No, this happened to your great-grandfather. This happened to him. This happened to her. These are the people that God worked through. These are the people that can testify to what God is doing. This is history. Make sense? Now, if you were looking closely when I was reading through Genesis 5, sometimes it doesn't feel like history. Sometimes it can feel a little bit like myth, especially when it comes to the idea of how long these people lived. I mean, were you catching a, a trend here? You know, it was like eight to 900 years, except for Enoch, who like went for a walk with God someday and never came back. Everyone else was living these huge lifespans. What's going on? Well, you might remember from the fall that a curse was laid out, and the curse said this. Give me Genesis 3, please. God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, and here it is, underline it, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In God's original economy, people were not intended to die. According to the biblical testimony, death is the result of sin. But you get this idea tucked within these genealogies that God is still a God who is good and God is a God who desires to bless, not judge. And you almost get the sense that he's staving death off in the lives of these early people as long as he can possibly hold it at bay. Now, growing up, I would read these and I always get a sense of like, you know, my grandma, I remember when she turned, my great-grandma, when she turned 91, frail, and in a wheelchair, suffering from Alzheimer's. And I'm like, she's 91. How do you get to 800 in a life like this? I want to replay a clip for you very briefly. Show it. I was there, Gandalf. I was there 3,000 years ago. How long ago was he there? 3,000 years ago. Did he look like some, oh, I was there 3,000 years no, if I look like that at 3,000, I'm going to be a happy man, all right? Shoot, if I got hair like that in my 50s, I'm going to be a happy man. I mean, think about it. These guys are having kids well into their hundreds. Believe me, if I'm siring children into my hundreds, I will be a happy man, all right? It's like God is staving off death. And no death has to come because of the consequence. He is holding it at bay in what we would consider supernaturally long extensions. But make no mistake, Genesis and its record intends these genealogies to be a record of history. But it's more than that, it's more than history. It's not just history for history's sake. It's covenant history. And here's what that means. A covenant is nothing more than like a, a contractual promise. 
It's covenant history. It is the history of how God is going about to redeem and restore a fallen world. Now, let me say that again. The history that the Bible is concerned with is the history of how God is going about to redeem and restore a fallen world. You can put it like this. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and they find themselves in the garden and God comes face to face with the serpent, he says, not that, Genesis 3, please. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers, right? Mutual hatred, constant warfare. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Keen on the last line. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He's talking to the snake. Who's the he? I mean, it doesn't say, does it? For Adam and Eve, they just knew this. One is going to come who will crush evil's head. But here's the thing. Who is it going to be? In their mind's eye, who is going to be this head-stomping, serpent-crushing seed who is going to come to redeem God's people and set his creation free? This is what covenant history is all about. And nestled within this curse is this silver lining of hope. Tucked within it is this ray of hope that even though it says there is going to be constant strife in this world between the offspring of Eve and the evil that may be, there's going to be a seed, an offspring. One who is going to come to crush that serpent's head and set God's people free. That's covenant history. For Lord of the Rings, it involved ring lore. It involved ring lore and in the, in the line of kings that came. Let's see going ahead another thing that it brings. Show the clip. There's no strength left in the world of men. A scattered, divided, leaderless. There is one who could unite them. One who could reclaim the throne of Gondor. What is it like? What is it like to be Adam and Eve and to finally give birth to a seed? To finally have seed come from your line and you name him Cain. You name him Cain, your firstborn. Is this the one who is going to set us free? What does the story say? He seems more like the offspring of the serpent, doesn't he? Than the offspring of Eve. And imagine what it's like to be a parent responsible for the cataclysmic fall of the world as you know it, all right? You feel bad because your kids turned out screwed up. Imagine that on your shoulders. Imagine what it's like to be a parent, but God gives you a promise and God gives you a hope, but from your seed, a redeemer will come. And you give birth to a son and you love him and you name him Cain. And he turns out to be more evil than you thought a person could ever be. 
and he has seed that gives birth to seed and has offspring that, that, that produces offspring. And the line goes on. And instead of getting better, it gets further and further away until you finally have a guy like Lamech in the end saying, you know, God said my dad would be, my, my great-grandfather would be avenged seven times. I'll be avenged 77 times. A worse murderer than his forefather had ever been. What is it like to yearn and hope for God to send the answer to his promise, to yearn like they did for that seed and see it go the wrong way. What the genealogies are laying out is a covenant history of who this seed who comes to reclaim the throne happens to be. And tucked within it, I believe, is this. A prophetic call. A prophetic call to each of us. Which line are you going to be? Of which line are you going to choose to be? The line of Cain? Or the line of Seth? The offspring of the serpent? Or the offspring of Eve? It's fascinating as you begin to chase, to, to trace these genealogies through the Bible, and they get longer and longer and longer. You suddenly start to discover being of a certain biological line doesn't per se determine what kind of seed you're going to be. I think of Jesus' genealogy and tucked within it is this prominent figure. Her name is Rahab. By the way, it's the name of a pagan dragon. Her name is Rahab. Rahab is not the seed of Abraham. Rahab is a prostitute. And yet she chooses the way of God and she is venerated as one of the great, great grandmothers of that seed that Genesis 3 promised to be. And within Jesus' genealogy, I think of others like Manasseh. Pure blood, grade A, Abraham. Not only that, one of Israel's kings. And yet if you read his story, it says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it traces out the abhorrence of evil that would make Cain and Lamech blush. In fact, it says because of Manasseh, God's judgment came upon the people of Israel in his day. And the question is this, what kind of seed are you going to be? Because I'll tell you this, ultimately it doesn't come down to biology. Ultimately, God doesn't care who your father is or what your grandfather did or didn't do. The choice of every seed of Eve is what are you going to do? Who will you choose? Who will you ally yourself with? Offspring of serpent or offspring of Eve? After recounting the line of Cain, 
when it doesn't look like it can get any worse. There's a hinge verse. It's just tucked right in there. You can overlook it if you're not careful. It says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another in the place of Abel. And he had a son named Enoch. And here's the last line. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time, in those first couple of generations, people discovered there was a choice to make. Line of the serpent. Line of Eve. The question of the genealogies is this. What's your choice going to be? It was thousands of years later that one who was from the line of Eve took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body stricken for you. And he took a cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood spilled for you in the war with the serpent for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The promised seed of Eve who finally came, Jesus, to restore his people and set his people free, makes this invitation to you. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved. That's his invitation to you today. So would you rise? And I invite you to call upon his name right here, right now, with me today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only.